Good morning. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 134, verses 1 through 3. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And unlike a roller coaster ride where you're only lifting up your hands for a couple of minutes, we get to lift our hands and bless the Lord all day long. So, Reading from Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Thanks be to God and to Jesus for providing the way of salvation. As I said at the outset, our hymns have been carefully chosen. We've had inevitably to leave some out that we might have used, and one that we omitted uh, begins, has the opening line, Give me a sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. And then the refrain, O make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. In providing uh, that kind of sight in response to that kind of request, the gospel writers are marked, if you like, with a sense of divine reticence. Uh, those of us who saw the passion of the Christ would have come away with a number of thoughts, one of them inevitably being, but somehow or another the gospel writers chose not to make things as graphic as that. And under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have the events concerning Christ's death and resurrection, and for that matter, his birth, in what we might refer to as a relatively matter-of-fact way of speaking. In the, New, in the Old Testament, we're very familiar with the prophet's words, particularly the prophecy of Isaiah, and we are less familiar with the poetry of the psalmist. And it is to the poetry of the psalmist that we turn here in this 22nd Psalm, which actually provides more of an insight into the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ than any other psalm, perhaps than any other part of the entire Bible. And the verses come uh, to make us aware of the fact that uh, Scripture uh, is prepared to uh, maintain and retain a sense of propriety in it all. And when we read Psalm 22, uh, we discover that in many ways, uh, this is where it pushes the limits of description. Uh, the, way in the way in which things are described here is very, very graphic. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You can almost taste it. And it is poetry. And it is passion. And it is purposeful. My three points. We need to move quickly. First of all, to acknowledge that what we deal with here in these psalms is in fact poetry. The opening verse of the psalm is most familiar to us, found on the lips of the Lord Jesus uh, on the cross. However, when we read the Psalms, and not least of all this Psalm, the meaning of the Psalm 
lies somewhere, first of all, other than in its ultimate fulfillment. What we mean by that is simply this, that the poem is found, first of all, in the world of the one who wrote it, namely David. And David wrote this some 1,000 years before the events of the crucifixion. And he was experiencing something, uh, an experience that is not defined for us, but an experience that gave rise to this lament. Uh, we can only say that it must have taken place in some dark period of his life. And of such periods, there were a number in David's life, just as there are dark periods in each of our lives, and therefore we find ourselves grateful on occasion for the fact that the Psalms are filled with lament. Now, I hope you have the Bible open so that you can follow me. I want to move as quickly as I can. You will notice that the poem opens with crying and with groaning, the words of my groaning. I cry by day, but you don't answer. I cry out at night, but I find no rest. So whatever is going on with David, uh, in the morning he cries, in the evening he groans, and he's not making much of a go of it through the watches of the night. Well, you say, well, has he lost his faith? No, he hasn't. Is he in a broken relationship with God? Clearly, no, he isn't. Now, what he's describing here is a sense of disorientation. A disorientation that is on account of the fact that God is silent, that God is apparently absent. I cry out to you, and you don't hear me. Or if you hear me, you do not answer me. Yet, he says, verse 3 and 4 and 5, as I think about it, you are holy. Verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. Verse 5, to you they cried and were rescued. 5b, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. In other words, he's aware of the fact that God has not failed those who in previous generations had looked to him for deliverance which is what makes verse 6 so hard. I cry, you don't hear. I groan, there's no answer. I'm restless all through the night. However, in the past when people cried to you, you delivered them. So why the exception, verse 6? How come I'm the exception? I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. They see me, they mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Then he says, but when I think about it, verse 9, you are the one who took me from the womb. In other words, my birth was not an accident. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. From the very beginning of my existence, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. But trouble is near, and there's no one to help me. That's what he says. Now, time does not allow us to work our way through this entire poem. That can be your homework. But let me identify for you what changes in verse 12 through verse 21. God is not heeding his cry. Men are despising his person. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. He is subjected to anguish and to pain. And that goes all the way through that. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then notice we go into the past tense. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, when you study this on your own, you will see that there's quite a reversal here. In verse 12, uh, the bulls are attacking. In verse 13, the lion is roaring. In verse 16, the dogs are surrounding. But now in verses 20 and 21, the great reversal has taken place. You deliver me from the sword, from the power of the dog, from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And so he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers, and I'm going to do it two places. First of all, I'm going to do it locally in the midst of the congregation, and then I'm actually going to do it comprehensively in verse 27, when all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Okay, so what is clear when you read this? When you read this, you realize that no experience of David's suffering, no event in David's life, can quite encapsulate the reality of that to which he speaks. No experience of suffering, no experience of deliverance, other than the one to which it points. Namely, our Lord's experience of the cross and resurrection. For only in the cross and in the resurrection do we find the, the universal result, which we read together from verse 27. How will all the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord? How will the families of nations be brought together under God? How will all of this be accomplished? Now what we have to say is this, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was involved in a kind of hyperbole that, that reached out beyond him, if you like, because he is clearly describing something that is beyond him. The reality of his own experience does not encompass the totality of what his poem conveys. Why? Because the poetry reveals the passion. What passion? The passion of Christ. And it contains and it conveys more than what the psalmist conveys of his own personal story. Because what it is pointing to is the larger purpose that God has in all the world, and the ultimate focus of the psalm is on that. You may remember that when in 1 Peter uh, he talks about the, the work of the prophets and how the prophets prophesied about things that they themselves did not fully grasp. In fact, he says they were at one point standing on their tiptoes, as it were, looking down through history and essentially saying to themselves, I wonder what all of this means. In a very realistic way, David must have been doing the same. Aware of the fact that whatever his real experience was in real time, a thousand years before the Passion of Christ, whatever that was, he was caused to write in such a way so as to convey something far more significant, far more catastrophic than anything he had himself known. Incidentally and in passing, this is one of the testimonies to the authenticity of the divinity of Scripture itself. How do you explain Psalm 22, 
in all of its prophetic detail, penned by someone who lived 1,000 years before, before crucifixion was ever invented by the Romans. How do you explain it? The fact of the matter is that God is the author of Scripture and that all of Scripture points ultimately and savingly to Jesus so that even when we read the Psalms, we eventually read them wrong unless we read them in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. There isn't another Psalm in the Bible that actually points to Christ in, the, in quite the same way. And it's, this isn't a matter of conjecture. If you think about this, given that Jesus would have known all of the Psalms off by heart, he would have known all of the Psalms off by heart, isn't it interesting? Isn't it surely significant? That when on the cross, he unburdens his soul, he does so using Psalm 22 a psalm that he would have sung as a boy in the synagogue along with the rest of the congregation that then is embodied in the reality of what he faces in the cross. Now, I'll leave you to do this on your own, but let me point it to you so that you can follow it up. As I say to you, this is not conjecture. And the way in which we can get to this is by understanding the way in which the New Testament uses the psalm. Okay? So as we read the Bible backwards, we can make sense of it. So verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. If you know Matthew 27 at all, you know that is exactly what you find there in verse 39. And they crucified him, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, quoting Psalm 22 in verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Again, you know that, don't you? Hey, he saved others, he can't save himself. If he's the son of God, let him come down from the cross. If God really listens to his prayers, let him deliver him. Let's see how that goes. That's exactly Psalm 22. And I think it was perfect that we read in the course of our, our um, structure here this evening uh, from John chapter 19, because John 19 is picking up verse 18. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They took his garments, they looked at one another and they said, well, we've all got one each, but this large one, don't let's tear it. Let us, let us, let us cast lots for it. And John says in John 19, and this was to fulfill what the scripture said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And about the ninth hour, with a loud voice, he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthini. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Read Hebrews chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 2 picks that up directly. And the writer of the Hebrews says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things were exist should be the one who said, I will declare your praise in the midst of the congregation. In other words, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. In other words, what it takes us to is what the rest of the Bible unfolds. Behold the Lamb of God, says John the Baptist, who takes away the sin of the world. 
or in the words of another famous hymn by Kelly, which begins, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. It goes on into the verse, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view the nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears its awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. So the poetry is embedded in the real-time existence of the one who writes, namely David. David writes in such a way under the guidance of the Spirit that it points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might not only understand his person, but understand the purpose. Why, why is there significance in what we're about to do? Why is there? Unless these emblems are emblems of his atoning sacrifice. Unless we come to it saying to ourselves at least, my Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free? What kind of sacrifice is this that justifies the ungodly, that saves sinners, that puts us in the assembly of the righteous? On the front of our bulletin, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When the Ethiopian eunuch, coming back from the uh, precincts of the temple in Jerusalem, is riding in his chariot, and Philip is sent to him uh, in, the, in the amazing purposes of God, he's reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. And he's reading Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And, and the Ethiopian asked the inevitable and obvious question. After Philip has asked him a question, do you understand what you read? To which he replies, how could I understand it unless somebody explained it to me? Who does he speak about, himself or someone else? They might have asked the same thing about Psalm 22. Who is David speaking about, himself or someone else? Well, in David's case, it was himself, but far more someone else. In the case of Isaiah the prophet, it was always someone else. And Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and explained to the man the good news concerning Jesus. What good news? that this suffering servant dies in the place of the sinner. You see, the great challenge for us on a night like this, coming out of the environment from which most of us have come, is that we live in a culture where morality is regarded as virtually irrelevant and where emotion and psychology is regarded as the great issue. Some of us lived at a time when the great concern of our parents was whether we were good or bad. I don't want you to be a bad boy. I want you to be a good boy. I don't want to be scathing in my observation, but I feel far more that the concern of the average young parent is, I want you, honey, to feel good about yourself. I want you to feel good about yourself. Whether you're going to be a good boy or a good girl is actually secondary to 
as long as you feel good about yourself. So then when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, if we then try and make sense of it in psychological, emotional terms, it doesn't make any sense at all. The only way it makes sense is in light of what the Bible says, that the problem of mankind is not an emotional problem, it is a moral problem. It is a moral problem that we have turned our backs on God. We said it in our prayer of confession, that we have in the words of the prophet Isaiah, we have all gone our own way. We've turned to our own way. We've decided, no, we can do it entirely on our own. And the good news is that God, who loves with an everlasting love, pursues those who are running from him. And the Lord in Jesus has laid on his dearly beloved son what we deserve, what we deserve. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the wrath reserved for me. You see, the, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is a death of substitution. And in his death, the justice of God is satisfied completely once and for all. God does not just look, does not just say nothing matters. No, God has, put, has planned a day when he will judge the world and he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. That's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. That the people who think they got off didn't actually get off. No. No. God's justice must be satisfied. God's love must manifestly be conveyed. Where is the justice and the love of God then clearly seen at the cross of his dearly beloved son? Because you see, the cross assures us not only that there is ultimately justice in the universe, but it assures us that there is forgiveness for all who trust in Christ crucified. There is forgiveness for all who trust in Christ crucified. It does not say there is forgiveness for all who attend church regularly. That there is forgiveness for all who try their level best to be a decent soul. It says there is forgiveness for all who trust. Who trust. In other words, who trust themselves entirely to what has been done on behalf of them not by them. And Psalm 22 begins in darkness and in dereliction, and it ends in triumph. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of missionary end, isn't it? To see unbelieving people becoming committed followers of Jesus Christ, to see the next generation, to see the generations that we ourselves will never see. They will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What will they declare? Look at, look at the closing phrase of the psalm. That he has done it. That he has done it. What does that sound like? It sounds like it is finished. That's exactly right. That's what it's supposed to sound like. He has done it. It is finished. It is accomplished. Trust in it. So we end where we began with a song that we weren't going to sing. Give me a sight, O Savior. Here is how it finishes. Was it the nails, O Savior, that held thee to the tree? No. It was your everlasting love, your love for me, for me. 
Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Father, as we come to gather round your table, grant that it may be in full assurance of faith, looking from ourselves to your dearly beloved Son, who in his own body on the tree bore our sins. What a wonder. We bless you. We praise you in Christ's name. could hear a pin drop. That was very, very powerful. I like the idea of looking back to look forward, Old Testament to New Testament. Come, let us stand and confess our faith together as we join our lives in the timeless words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. May our closing hymn unite us and draw us close to Jesus. <laughs> 